there, Mairead Robinson here, and thank you for joining me for another Senior Times Wine Podcast. Once again, I suggest you make yourself comfortable and pour yourself a glass of something particularly special this evening while you join me for today's conversation. My guest today is well-known hotelier Bill Kelly from Kelly's Resort Hotel in County Wexford. Bill, you're more than welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Um, I know that you were training in Switzerland and that's where you met your, your wife whose, whose family own a, a vineyard back in Chateauneuf de Pape. Um, but the whole wine connection has been central to Kelly's now for years. I'd love to start our conversation. I know you have a wealth of knowledge about wine, which I'm looking forward to hearing. Um, but if we could start way back in Switzerland when you met Isabel, is that where your interest in wine started or could we go from there? Yeah, I mean, we've—I uh, I guess I've—I've I've had a keen interest in wine, uh, and interesting enough, it probably did start at hotel school because in the very first year, hotel school in Switzerland, where I met my wife Isabel, we we had wine tasting classes, and uh, we used to go to the wine tasting class, and we had a teacher who was absolutely passionate about wine. The only unfortunate part of the wine tasting class is it started at 8 a.m. in the morning. And he, he reckoned it was your palate was at its best at that time. I mean, My he goodness. didn't realize we'd been out the night before, so it wasn't <laughs> always the case. But, uh, you know, as we were young students, you'd often be out the night before. But uh, that said, we, he really gave us passion and Monsieur Thibault gave us a real passion for wine so much so that we set up our own club within the school and we used to meet once a month 12 of us and we brought a bottle each and uh, we'd have to describe the bottle go through it and we'd put a price range on it every time but it was a great way to meet and learn at the same time. And from that onwards, then every few months, we'd start visiting different areas, both around Switzerland and also in France. We'd head off to Alsace for a day mm. or head to Burgundy or head to the Rhone. And uh, so I guess the passion really started for me in the hotel school and I've never looked back. Excellent. Well, certainly when we think about Chateauneuf de Pap. Um, we think about perhaps some of the most expensive wines. So I'm interested to hear why they are so expensive, why they are so special. But having said that, you very kindly brought along a very special Clos de Pap wine, which I'm tasting here as we, as we talk. So maybe you tell me a little bit about Chateauneuf de Pap and about this wine, and then we'll go back to the hotel. Well, uh, Chateauneuf de Pap is down in the Southern Rhone Valley. So it's the Rhone Valley is divided into the Northern Rhone, um, which is Septentrional, and then the Southern Rhone, which is Meridional. So it tends to get that warmer climate and um, much warmer climate down in the south, and where the grape varieties tend to be more Grenache, uh, Syrah, Mauvedre, Sanso, all sort of warm sort of uh, varieties that that take the sun well and uh, give, you know, I always say to give that lovely spicy flavours. Frequently for me, it, it's ideal in Ireland because we eat a lot of lamb. So a fantastic wine to drink with lamb. Uh, Chateauneuf du Pape, uh, like as 
coming marrying a, a girl from Chateauneuf and in the wine business in Chateauneuf is very close to my heart. But I remember when we were first dating, people used to say, God, you're married with the, the woman who owns Chateauneuf du Pape. But <laughs> Chateauneuf du Pape is a lot of producers. There's 320 different producers of Chateauneuf du Pape. And yes. it's a little bit like going to a hotel in Ireland. You've got one star Chateauneuf's, two star Chateauneuf's, three star, four star, five star. I think the Clos du Pape is in the five star category, thankfully. But, you know, it is a very good Chateauneuf. But that said, the the price range across the Chateauneuf's ranges uh, tremendously, and it's quite confusing for the customer. Indeed. And I think the only way to know if, if it's a good Chateauneuf is to taste it. And yes. if it's to your liking, uh, we can give you, or any one of you out there who are listening to this, we can give you any, any Chateauneuf du Pape but it, at the highest price level. But if you don't like it, you know, that's your personal taste. You know, you can't say it's a horrible wine or it's a disgusting wine or whatever. I mean, it, it can be, you, it's your taste. So it's so important that I would say you sometimes you see special offers going on in a supermarket, you know, in Little or somewhere like Chardonnay for 15 euros. And I often say to people, you know, buy one bottle before you buy a case, you yes, know, and, and see if you like it. Because you might be better off buying a really good Coterone at 12 euros that would taste better than the Chateauneuf du Pape at 15 euros. You know, mm -hmm. So again, it comes down to taste. So there are 320 producers in Chateauneuf. You're, you're talking about over 5,000 hectares, or nearly 5,000, 4,500 hectares of vine, which equates whole of the Cote de Nuit in Burgundy. So it's a huge area. You know, and uh, so there's a lot of producers, a lot of wines. All I say is taste first before you buy, or if you can. And if you are buying, buy one before you buy the case and make sure you like it. Well, I have to say this one that you've um, given me today is absolutely gorgeous. It's a very, very sophisticated wine. It tastes like velvet. I'm trying to remember what my sommelier friend, Alan Brow, said in my last podcast, how slowly to keep it in the mouth. Don't be in a hurry to swallow it. Um, no, it is fabulous. It's absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's a wine that's like, that's 2018 vintage. 2018 Indeed. vintage was my, my brother-in-law, uh, Vincent Avril, or Paul Avril. Paul Vincent, he's better known as. But he... Um, he makes his wines all organically as well. So I uh, in 2018, they, they, had, they had a lot of mildew. So it, his harvest, his end harvest, because he's, he's just, it, it, for him, his key thing is the quality. He doesn't care about the quantity. So for him, if the quality is good every year, he will have a following for his wine. So it, it's just such a small, uh, return where normally he's allowed to produce up to um, 30, 25, 30 hectolitres a hectare. In that year, he made eight. So he made like a third of his normal um, harvest uh, that year. So very, very small, but the quality was excellent. I mean, mm -hmm. I just know Robert Parker gave that wine, I think, 96 or 98 out of 100. So yeah, it's um, astounding. Yes. It's, it's outstanding. Like it got really 
for such a, a wine with such a small yield in such a challenging year, it just shows how good wine growers can make wine great. Indeed. Actually, I, I, I jumped forward there, but I, I actually wanted you to, um, yeah, to ju- just give us a little bit on your, your wine journey when you came back to Kelly's. And as I said, I know you were the fourth generation of your family. Um, so did you begin to really look at the wine aspect of the hotel? Because your wine lists are renowned. So um, was it um, then that you decided to really focus on the wine? Well, when I came back first, my my father, if I go back, my father unfortunately passed away in 1977. So I was 15 years of age at the time. Uh, and my mum thankfully kept the business going over the next 10 years before I returned in 86. But at that stage, the wine list had sort of dwindled down and, uh, you know, we were buying wine from lots of different importers around Ireland. You know, nice wines, but it was sort of quite average. When I came back, we started importing wines directly uh, for the hotel. So in Burgundy alone, I have 28 different producers. So I look for the small exclusive producers mm. who produce really great wines. And so when I go to Gebri Chambertin, I look for the best Gebri Chambertins. Go to Von Romane, or when I go to any of the villages, I look for the best wines we can get in that area and try to bring them in for Kelly's. So I've built up uh, uh, like a, a number of great producers that I follow over, over the years. And the, the interesting thing about a producer, it's a little bit like going to a hotel again in Ireland where, you know, when you go to a property, maybe the weather is bad when you're down there, but you can still have a great visit in a good premises. You know, uh, the food is good and you enjoy yourself. There's lots to do indoors. And it's a little bit the same in the wine. In a, in a difficult vintage or a difficult harvest, growers come into their own and they make really great wines, you know, every year. So the wines I follow and the growers I've got to know and as personal friends, many of them have visited the hotel. In fact, I'd say nearly all of them have been over to stay with us and do wine tastings in the hotel, which we organize twice yearly. But uh, and they've come over and they've got such a, a a passion for what they do. And there's no such thing as a bad harvest. They make great wines, even in difficult years. The wine will be different. It'll be a different experience, but it'll still be a great wine. And I, I know that you go over to France, I think, every year, don't you? And you bring some of the staff from the hotel, some of your wine waiters and sommeliers, so they'll be familiar with the wine. You're very well informed. Yeah, yeah. Ah, but well I've, stayed, I've stayed down with you before. <laughs> We've talked wine before. I've been at some of your wine tastings. No, I just think, I can understand uh, you going and doing it, but I just think it's wonderful that the guys who are actually serving the tables are that familiar with the wine as well. That's pretty unique. Yeah, well, I think it's so important for them to understand like the passion that I have and sure. and, and the effort that goes into the lift, that list that they understand the man who's behind it because yes. like we've the simple part just tasting the wine or drinking like they all the hard work really is in the vineyard and you know the growers that I buy from like when you see their hands they're farmers these guys aren't like going around and Porsches or these guys are, are farmers. They don't care about material things. They just care about the soil and the land that they work on. And they're out there, be it rain, hail or snow, you see them out there pruning the vines, looking after the vines. I think it's wonderful that the, the, the wine waiters in the hotel 
will know all that about the about the wineries and will be able to give a little bit of background you know the story behind the wine which everyone wants to know about tell me actually talking about restaurants and and I know your wine list is special. What are the most common mistakes people make who, who go into a restaurant and look at the wine list? What are, what are the most common mistakes that they make? Or have you got a bit of, little bit of advice about how somebody who has a medium amount of knowledge about wine, yeah. or maybe even very little? The, the, first, the first thing I would say to everybody out there is we're creatures of habit. We'll go in and they say, oh, give me a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand or give me, they look for a safe bet. And it's, to me, it becomes like drinking Coca-Cola. So you go and you order the same wine every time you go into a restaurant. Like, it's crazy to do that when there's so many brilliant producers. I never drink the same wine like a few days in, in, in the same week or over the same month. I'd always try something different. Now, it's easy for me because I have all the wines there. But I think when you're going out buying wine, just be a bit adventurous because there's so many fantastic producers. There's so many different varieties that we don't even know. Like people don't, like they drink sort of no, when you ask the general man in the street, they know Sauvignon Blanc and maybe Chardonnay. Now you're pushing your luck, but they might know Marsan or Viognier, or, but there's or they know Pinot Grigio maybe, or, which is also Pinot Gris. And, but there's so many other great wines out there, Rieslings and, and uh, you know, Tokai and different wines that you can taste. So all I say is challenge yourself to try something different. Just don't go back for the steady eddy. The other thing I would say, which is more important, is when you're drinking a wine, to drink them the correct glasses. I think glass is really important. If, if for both white and red, there are glasses and it makes a huge difference. Yes. And you know, you know that yourself because if somebody pours you a, a glass of red wine in a tumbler, it just doesn't seem right, but it actually doesn't taste the same either. But more importantly, again, is the temperature of the wine. If you leave a wine in a fridge overnight, it's going to be four degrees. Your, your fridge should be four degrees or less in your kitchen. So that is way too cold. You wouldn't even drink champagne at that temperature. Mm. So for me, I think white wine should be drunk at around 12 to 14 degrees. The better the white, the higher the degree should be. So like if I'm drinking a, a Merceau or something, I would drink, generally drink it at around 14, you know, let it warm up. And that's why as you go on drinking some of these wines, you realize that they get better and better. Why do they get better and better? One, they've been aerated, but secondly, that they've warmed up. They're way too cold. A nice bucket for a white wine is a no-go for me. I mean, I know some people like it. If the wine's not great, definitely put it in a nice bucket. If it's a great wine, don't put it in a nice bucket. I, compl I completely you know? agree. I hate and, when it's too cold, yeah. For the red wine, I would say, the opposite, where most of us drink our red wines too warm. Too warm, yes. And, you know, I, I cry in horror when I, I head into somebody's house and they've got these beautiful wines and they're putting them there beside the aga to warm them up. You, you may as well put a few cloves and a bit of sugar and uh, <laughs> something in and make a glue vine, you know, but it absolutely ruins the wine. You have a red wine that's warm. 
what yes. happens is all you get is the alcohol and you lose the whole balance of the wine itself. So for me, a red wine should be drunk at around 16, 18 degrees max. But yeah. and, and for Burgundy, I would definitely drink Burgundy at around 16. Bordeaux, maybe 18 degrees. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Um, what I was thinking as we were talking there, um, when when the New World Wines came on board and we all fell in love with the big um, uh, Australian wines and, and uh, Californian wines, I think for a lot of people it was because the grape variety was written on the bottle, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, uh, Shiraz, whatever. And so they thought, oh yes, I like that grape, that, I'll go for that. Whereas the French wine, traditionally the labels don't always give the grape varieties. They just give Never. Uh, perhaps to be... <laughs> Well, you see, I know that's a double-edged sword because, I mean, a, you know, a, a Chardonnay grown here is completely different to a Chardonnay grown somewhere else because of the terroir and everything, and people don't always take that into, into account. But I just think that the New World did one thing commercially successful, and that was making labels very user-friendly. And I wonder how that affected the French wine industry. I mean, I mean, how, how, do, how do you think the French wine industry yeah. copes with the new world wines? Yeah, well, I think the, I, I actually think it was a really good thing. I think the, the uh, growth, the new world wines was fantastic. Uh, in, it was hugely damaging to the cheaper French wines, but it, uh, at, at that time. But what it has done is made them work much harder to make better wines. Uh, because if you go back 30 years ago or 25 years ago, France were still very much in, in, they hadn't looked at sort of, I guess, the technology of making wine. And when I call it technology, it's old style, but it's just controlling, like controlling the temperature of the fermentation. They let everything happen naturally. Where now, when you go into a cellar in Burgundy now, like even if they use the old school vats and everything else mm -hmm. within the cellar, they have everything is temperature controlled. The environment is often temperature controlled as well. So, so the harvest grapes when they come in are temperature controlled because if it's very warm outside when they bring it in, they can start to ferment before the pressing, for example, for the white and things like that. So everything is much more controlled. They understand the whole technology of making a wine much better. And they've used that 
exceedingly well. So yes. I think the New World Wines actually brought that to their attention, especially for the for the less expensive wines. I think so, uh, and yeah. I, do, I do think it, they introduced more people to wine. So now what I see is that there was a huge move to uh, New World Wines, uh, let's say 15 years ago. And bit by bit, those people who started being interested in New World Wines are now trying to seek out and they're interested in the passion of the French wines. They're yeah. saying, Burgundy, when you go to Burgundy, the whole of white Burgundy is made by Chardonnay with the exception of Bourgogne Aligode. So mm-hmm. whether you're talking about a Corton Charlemagne, a Merceau, Pouli Montrachet, uh, a, a Givry, a Montigny, uh, like no matter what wine, a Saint Romain, a Saint Aubin, they're all side by side and they're made from uh, the same grape variety, but it's the terroir that changes them. Of course. And, of course. and I was talking to somebody here, they were asking me the other day, we were having dinner at home, and they were saying, but how does it change, Bill? How does that Chardonnay, it's right beside, we were tasting a, a Pouli Montrachet, Les Enseigneurs, which is, there's only a road between Les Enseigneurs and Bienvenue Bata Montrachet. The price differential for Les Enseigneurs is about six times cheaper than the Bienvenue Bata Montrachet. And yet, you know, they're side by side. And sure. how come? And and that's what makes Burgundy interesting, is the fact that oil plays such an important role, that whole question of terroir, and the fun and understanding. And I said, you know something, where do you buy your potatoes? They said, oh, we buy them in Carn. And I said, and if you don't go to Carn, where do you go? They said, oh, we go to Bano. And if you don't go to Bano, where do you go? And I say, we go to maybe Kilmore Key or Killinick. And I said, well, that's it. They're the premier crews. The Grand crew is Carn Potatoes. The premier crew is, is, is Kilmore Urbano. And Killinick is probably a very good village. You know, and that's what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. You're looking at, it's all about terroir. It's all about, and it's the same. You ask any farmer, he'll tell you, which is his best field to grow potatoes in or his best field for carrots or his best field. So it's, it's the exact same thing. But the difference is that the potatoes, you need rich in soil where for, well, it, you need good draining soil for wine as well. But they're very frequently, the great wines are made in very poor soil with a lot of stone and gravel thing underneath. You know? sure. But it is interesting, the comparison between the two. It's all agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. I I remember doing a wine tasting where we had uh, uh, wines, the same grape variety from different regions and just getting people to understand the the uh, the impact of the terroir, the climate, the soil and all of that that had it had on the grape. But there's something else I wanted to ask you, a couple of things I want to ask you about, actually. But um, two years ago, um, summer 2019, I went to a really interesting conference in, in Lisbon on the future of wine. And there were winemakers from all over the world there. And of course, the big topic was climate change and what they were doing in the, what was happening in the vineyards to help that. Of course, Miguel Torres was kind of ahead of the posse with all of this. But I just think it's very interesting and I think it's, it's, it's very difficult and it's very challenging. And wines are becoming, you know, higher in alcohol and harvesting time is a little bit more difficult. How do you think France is coping with the whole climate change thing in your experience? Yeah, I think um, they're, they're certainly 
doing a lot in that space to try to date. They know it's an issue. I mean, if you look at the last four harvests in in Burgundy, like they have been in August, you know, yeah. which is like, it's outrageous. If you go yeah. back even 10 or 15 years ago, it just didn't happen. I yeah. mean, most of the harvest, like in my living memory, like all the wine growers went on holidays for the first two weeks, last two weeks of, of August and the first two weeks of September. And they came back for the harvest in the, the middle of, of September. September. Yeah. And now, now they're, like they can't take a holiday at the end of August because they're in the middle of harvest. Like exactly. it's, 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 it's amazing. But at the same time, the wines for me, the, 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 they've, they've found a balance because it's all about, well, I mean, when the weather gets warmer, they tend to, it tends to reduce the yields somewhat, believe it or not. Like if, if they reduce the yields and also how they cover the plants, the way they plant, the number of plants per hectare. So there's loads of things they can do, you know, to keep more leaf cover over the grapes. You know, there's different things they can do to, uh, to try to assist them. But, and one of the most important things as well is in the cellars, the whole control, once the harvest happens, that it goes directly from the field into a controlled environment in the cellar, that the cellar is temperature controlled as yes. well, where they're, they're actually vinifying the wine. So mm. all of those things have helped to make, uh, to make the wines uh, better during this difficult period. The wines can get, for me, the red in Burgundy or anywhere, can get a little bit pruney if they're too, you know, they get, you get that sort of secondary aroma set coming in a little bit early. Now, I often call them restaurant wines. You know, if you go back to 2009, it's a fantastic restaurant wine because like for the next three years after, it was just so easy. I mean, you can say the same of, of 18 and in Burgundy, I mean, it's such a restaurant wine. I mean, it's just, they're in your face. They're easy mm. to drink young. Will they last? I think with they will. They will last the test of time. You, you will be able to age them, but not all of them. Mm. Um, but it's, it's certainly a, challenging, a challenge. But the interesting thing for me is I've been looking now at this. You look at the climate change and there's areas that are producing fantastic wines that were always a little bit lacking in substance, like in, let's say, San Roman, uh, Oxe Dures. They're all terroirs that are a little bit higher on, on, on their about four, 400 feet up and, you know, they're up the hill, up the slopes, likewise down Merange and their areas of the Côte Chalonnaise. And what you find now is there's wines down there that there's vineyards who are just producing fantastic wines in those terroirs. So, you know, there could be a change in terms of what are the great wines of Indeed. Burgundy. But for the moment, I think the they, the terroir is very well planned and the Grand Cruz. But I think you will see a big, the Saint-Aubin, the, the Oxidures, the Saint-Romance, all those wines, you'll see them coming to the fore, you know. And I know in, on you've very extensive wine list, as I said, both in the, in the bistro and in the restaurant, you don't just have French wines now. You have wines from various other countries and from the New World as well, indeed. Yeah, well, we import wines directly, mostly from France. I'd say about yes. 90% uh, 90 of our list is from France because 
like it's when it's an area you know the people like it, you can specialize in the whole world but it, it, the list becomes too big i think we've we have over three or four hundred wines on the list at the moment so it, it's quite extensive and uh, but we've started importing wines from italy and also from spain and from south africa as well I see so that, yes. like we, we've sort of added to them I, I don't have a huge selection from any of those areas but um you know it's nice to add a, a few more to to the collection of growers you know you'd almost need to give your guests a copy of the wine list when they check in so they'll have plenty of time to read through it before they go down for their dinner <laughs> well it, it, it's all online and actually during the um uh, COVID last year, we decided to set up a, an online business to deliver wines to people's homes. So people can buy wine by the case or mixed cases or, you know, 12 single bottles into a case. So if they want to taste a lot of different wines, so that has gone really well. So we've been mm. extremely busy with that. It kept us, uh, I kept a little bit of sanity in the house here for us last year. Sure, I can imagine during the COVID, yes. It was interesting. It was great. You know, it was great to have that interest and, and to be able to give people a little bit of joy during a challenging time of this pandemic. Yeah, sure. Well, it was great for yourselves, but it was also because you do import directly, cutting out the middleman, you can offer, um, I looked at the wine list, you can offer very good value indeed for some wines. For me, the real challenge is trying to get value for money for a customer yeah. in terms of wine. It's not looking for, like, it's easy to go out and buy a, a Gevry Chambertin and you would expect it to be good if you're paying 60 euros a bottle, you know. But it's it's trying to find other wines that are equally as good, but from a different area that are less well known. Mm. And this year I, I went to France uh, before Christmas wine tasting uh, before. Before we got locked down a second time, I actually got locked over in France, which wasn't a bad thing. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I, I ended up stuck there for a few months, but I was quite happy. But I went wine tasting a few times and I came across wines from the Jura. Now, that's an area for me that I've never, I mean, I've tried some of the Jura wines, which are of their specialized wines like the Banjon. Uh, which is made like in a sort of oxidative way. It leaves a, it leaves the wall of the, of the fermentation uh, on top of the wine, and it just ages with that uh, skin on top of it, and it makes sort of quite sherry-like wine. Mm. And then we've got you've got a van de pie where they put the grapes out in straw, and and they make it's known as straw wine, and you get this sort of beautiful sweet wine. And I knew those wines, but they're straight Chardonnay from from the Jura or the straight the Pinot Noir. For me, always never quite hit it off. Mm. And I tasted some when I was in France, and I just had to go and buy them. So we now have a whole list from the Jura which I never had before. Excellent. And some fantastic Pinot Noirs at great price and a, a Trousseau as well, which is another great variety I didn't know, but it's got that beautiful spice from the Southern Rhone and really hearty and, and a big wine. And again, at great prices, you know. So to me, it's, it's looking a little bit outside what you expect to be great anyway. I like to have those wines too. Sure. But uh, it's trying to extend the list to little areas of interest that people can get fun and enjoyment out of.
Tell me, Bill, before we finish up, um, I know that you have six daughters. Do they share your That's love right. for wine? Yeah, I, I'm getting worried about them. Yeah, they all share my love for wine. Yeah, so it, it's actually interesting. Yeah, they've, they've all sort of been brought up with wine between my wife and myself. So uh, they actually, you know, they, they say even when they were younger, rather than going out and have a, a vodka and coke or something, yeah. they would look for wine and their friends would look at them and say, yeah, something wrong with you, you know. It's yeah. Totally, yeah, and now they're older. I mean, my youngest daughter now is... Uh, 23 so but even now she would like if she went out to a bar she'd frequently ask for a glass of wine you know yes. uh, so mind you there's not going out to a bar anymore but it'll happen again <laughs> but uh, so if they do they all share the passion for and I think what's important is they understand like when I rarely tell them what we're drinking and we don't talk about labels because to me, there's a lot of talk and snobbery about wine, but wine is there to be enjoyed. And I said, like, if, you know, I can give you the most expensive wine in the world. And if it's not to your taste, that's fine. Yes. You know, and I think it's, it's so important that you learn, but you don't learn about wine unless you experiment and try different wines. So to all those listeners out there, all I'd say is just when you go shopping the next time, try something, ask the advice of the person in the shop and tell them your budget or whatever, but try something that you haven't tried before. I guarantee you more than often, you will be really happy with the choice. Well, I think that's a great bit of advice. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Bill. Thank you so much. Well, lovely and, talking to you too, Marie. And um, yeah, I hope to get down to Wexford again when later on this summer and things open up. Thank you very much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience on the world of wine with us. Okay. 